The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 24 of the Ascent of Board Games. That's right, we've been doing this for two dozen episodes. We are, of course, recording remotely due to the COVID pandemic that's going on. So if at any point during this episode you start feeling bored, just realize that any or all of us may, in fact, not be wearing pants. Really? That's that's (laughs) Okay, fair enough. (laughs) I mean, I don't know what you want from me. That's what happens when you let me improvise the opener. I blame you being stir-crazy, personally. I mean, also, yes. Can't wait to see our numbers just plummet after this episode. <laughs> Sadly, I work a real job, and so to work a real job from home, I feel like I have to get dressed every day. Otherwise, I don't feel like I'm working. Yeah, I do that, too. I know several people who are like, if I'm in a meeting, I have to be wearing shoes. That's a step too far for me. That's weird. I don't I don't have that. But like, I do feel like if I'm in a meeting, I need to be wearing some sort of shirt and some sort of pant-like garment. <laughs> Lower body covering. And this has been our podcast about <laughs> Zoom meeting etiquette. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> no, we're here today to talk about real-time games. No particular reason. It was up on the poll and it was something we had been bouncing back and forth for a while. We had had an idea at one point that for real-time games, we would do a real-time streaming episode live, but that seems like a lot of work. And also, it's going to be a while before we're back together in the same room again. So we're just going to record ourselves talking about it. Time's up. Anything else you have to say in that statement is negative points. I see what you did there. So basically, these are games where you cannot really have analysis paralysis because you will just run out of time and not get anything done. There's a timer involved in some capacity, and usually there are multiple people using the same timer and people are racing to do things first, or you're just racing against the clock in general. There's a surprising amount of variety in these, I found, and as has been a tradition on this episode for a long time, the first game we found in this series was a lot older than I thought it was. I remember playing this as a kid in the 1970s, but it turns out that it dates back to 1903. And that would be Pitt, was released in 1903 by Waddington's, designed by Edgar Casey, and we'll get back to him in a minute, Harry Gavitt and George S. Parker. So Harry Gavitt actually designed an earlier game in 1896 called Gavitt Stock Exchange, which kind of had the first real-time. I have never played it. I just know it has real-time trading, but it's pretty much almost been forgotten in time. Although you can buy copies out of the box to re-release. But Pitt's the one people know. Pitt is billed as a stock market trading game. It's really kind of more of a party game in a lot of ways. Basically, you have a bunch of people around the table, and it plays up to seven or eight, I think. You have a bunch of cards dealt out. There are nine cards in each of the seven suits, and you just deal them out. And then the timer starts, and people just start shouting numbers at one another. What you're trying to do is accumulate all nine of one of the sets of cards. The one I had was wheat and rye and corn. It was grain trading, basically. But all it you can booze trading. <laughs> you can still have rye, I guess. So let's say I have four corn and three barley and a couple singles. I'm going to try and concentrate on corn. So I take the set of three rye and I just hold them up and face away so no one else can see what they are. And I just start yelling three, three, three. And if somebody else is yelling three, we exchange our sets of three with one another. And then usually we groan because either we've exchanged the same thing or you've exchanged something with me that I don't want. And basically this process continues with all groups of people yelling numbers at each other and swapping cards simultaneously until somebody has nine of a kind. Some things might be worth 100 points for the set, some might only be worth 50. And you play that until everyone gets fed up and then whoever has the most points at the end wins. It's a game of attrition, huh? (laughs) Like Monopoly, I give up. Sort of like that. I mean, it goes pretty fast, and certainly you have to have the right group and the right mindset for it. It's fun. It reminds me a lot of those, like, card games that you play with a deck of 52 cards. It's a game that... Solitaire Dutch Blitz, yeah. Yeah, we called Slaps when we were in the high school cafeteria. That's kind of what that reminds me of. As we said, the designer of this is a gentleman named Edgar Casey, who is better known as a... Clairvoyant, yeah, stick health guy, yeah. 
Yeah, he was a very interesting character born in the 1870s who basically believed that when he went into the sleep or trance states, he was hearing voices that would give him information. He apparently, as a child, fell asleep on his school books and then could say anything in them from memory, cured medical things. He actually was a, a fairly early pioneer in nutrition science, did a lot, and he designed a board game. So interesting. Bills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Prophecy may not be that profitable. It actually spawned a whole bunch of trading games. There's a, a number of threads that I think we'll come back to. But, uh, you know, if you play Civilization, deep kind of serious 4X kind of game, and in the middle there's this trading round that's basically pit that's actually very central to the game. There is another game that Mike brought up called Dutch Blitz from 1960. This is based on Nerb Solitaire, and it's generally a multiplayer team game where you're you're basically playing like solitaire where you're building up stacks, but you're doing it all in real time. Hmm. So yeah, that was 1903. And then there was a long gap. Like Frank said, there were a lot of games in this period that could fall into the real time category, but none of them have really stuck with us. We don't see another strictly real time game until 1998, which is one of the first real time games that I played at my friendly local comic book store called Falling. This is a cheap-ass games game designed by James Ernst. The premise is real easy. You are all falling. You win by being the last person to hit the ground. It's a shallow victory. Because <laughs> you live the longest. Right. So this game actually is a simulated real-time game that relies on one player to be a dealer who sets the pace for the game. And the instructions do kind of recommend, like, hey, dealer, you need to move at a consistent pace throughout the game while players are taking their actions. It's really easy. Every player has a stack of cards out in front of them that the dealer is going to deal cards to. The player can then pick up one card off of the top of their deck and hold it in their hand to be played at another time. And cards come in, like four or five varieties. Things like skip. If you have a skip on top of your deck, the dealer will skip that player for the round and take the skip card away from them. You can also have a split card, which will give you the player a second stack to deal to. And basically, you're going through these cards until you are dealt a ground card, at which point, smack, you've hit the ground and are now out of the game. However, you can get things like stop which will prevent a card from taking an action, so you can stop the ground, which is kind of interesting to think about. It basically plays out like that. A round literally takes minutes to play, and then you switch off who's the dealer and go again. I will say that this is really sort of a, a classic James Ernest design, because it's simple and straightforward, and also completely nonsensical from a plot standpoint. When I think about real-time games, before Frank reminded me of Pit Falling was the first one I thought of. They apparently at some point came out with a fantasy version of the game in which you were all goblins who are falling. The version I played, you were all just people. And so, like, the hit card was you literally shoving someone further down. Goblins, isn't it like giving someone an anvil, if I remember correctly? Right. Like, it's... <laughs> I think it really stepped into the absurdity, and that probably is for the best. Sure. I like the uh, the one that has the art with the cows falling was pretty great, too. <laughs> that yeah. was the German version, I think. <laughs> Very nice. Why were these cows falling? Who knows? Who knows? Clearly the French launched them out of a catapult. <laughs> I like the idea of them loading cows onto, like, a big old B-52, and then, like, <laughs> the cows just moving as you fly up, and then someone's just shoving them out of the back of that plane. You could also do the WKRP in Cincinnati tie in my witness, I thought cows could fly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, that's enough of that nonsense. That was well, more nonsense. Right. It's funny because I actually played this game in tandem with our next game, which came out in 1999, which was also a cheap-ass games from Jay Ernest. I feel like he was on a roll. This one was Brawl, which is a two-player deck game in which you fight like a Street Fighter game, although that theme is very light. Basically, the game is sold in packs of characters, and each character has a different deck combination. Most of the decks consist of three types of cards. They come with hits, bases, and blocks. The hits come in three flavors as well, red, blue, and green. 
So the game begins with each player putting a base out onto the table, and then one at a time you can draw a card from your deck and do one of two things with that. You can either play it to a base. If it's a hit, it locks that base into that color of hit. So if I put a green hit on a base, I can't then later play a blue hit on it. Or you can discard the card. On your turn, instead of drawing, you can also play the top card of your discard pile. At the end of a game, which is determined when three bases are stopped, in essence, you're going to assess to see who has the most hits on each base. That person takes control of that base. Whoever has the most bases wins. So it's a clever, quick little game. It had really good artwork. It was this Street Fighter-esque anime. It had some really interesting flavor. They then went kind of weird with it and went into, like, catgirl fighting, which, <laughs> eh. For 19.99, it was great, and the decks weren't that expensive either. I think it was, like, 5 $6 a pack because cheap-ass games. It got in, it did a thing, and then it got out. I know they did some tie-ins with Shadow Fist at one point, which was a more complicated, traditional CCG that had that sort of martial arts vibe going on. I played this at my friendly local comic book store. We were in high school, and it was real easy to just be like, hey, cool, let's pull out these cards and play a game while we wait for everybody else to show up. So it really filled a very specific niche for me back in the day. Just watching the gameplay videos I was watching of it, it could go lightning fast. Oh, yeah. The iconography and the colors and the mechanics are so simple. You can literally just, like, blaze through it as people just react to what the last play was from their opponent. So are you actually taking turns, or is it just you're playing cards? The learning game is done taking turns. But once you actually learn the mechanics, which doesn't take more than a playthrough or two, it wants to be played in real time. Okay. Which is really to say, how fast can you flip cards and place them on a thing? If you wanted something that was a little bit more thinky, perhaps, you might want to consider Ricochet Robots, which is a game that people that have played it tend to either really enjoy or really hate. This was a 1999 release by Alex Randolph from Rio Grande, and it's the first of what is sort of like a real-time competitive puzzle-solving game, I guess you'd call it. Um, Basically, there are a series of boards set up where you've got several colored robots and a target on the board. And when the timer starts, everybody has to figure out the shortest route in terms of number of moves to get the right colored robot to the target. Robots will move in a straight line until they hit a thing, and then you can move them off in a different direction. So you have to find the right combination of things to bounce off to get to the correct spot. There's not a whole lot more to it than that. You start the timer, you see a bunch of people just sort of staring at the board intently, and then somebody will say something like five, and a couple seconds go by, and then somebody says four. When someone gets to the lowest number they've found, they have to prove that they can do it in that number of steps, and if so, they win that round. If you like spatial puzzling and that sort of thing, it's fun. If you find that sort of thing tedious, you'll probably not enjoy it at all. And in the interest of filling in the uh, gaps, that mechanism of bidding for the lowest or highest, there was a game called Corona that's also by Alex Randolph from Cosmos. Bad timing, Frank. I know. And it's actually very similar to Ricochet Robot, except that the puzzle is very different. Ricochet Robot's the one you want because it's a more interesting game. But Corona has a number of pawns and you roll six dice for colors. And basically you get points for each time you land on a pawn. And you just have to assign dice to the pawns. It was actually released as Moonstar in 1981 by Avalon Hill. But no one's seen it. (laughs) The next game, oh, and I hate introducing this, is Nodwick the Card Game from 2002, designed by Frank Branham. This is effectively a pit variant. If you're familiar with Nodwick, the henchmen are always pretty abused. And the premise behind the game is that all the henchmen have been competing in uh, Hinch Olympics. But the first event was basically jumping over a giant meat grinder, and it didn't go so well. So you have to basically be the healers and put them all back together so they can continue competing. But you're not exactly delicate with your healing. So you just need some henchmen composed of mostly the same body parts. And so you've got a, a mixed deck of henchmen cards with various types of healing things like rose-colored glasses, duct tape, to actually assemble the part. 
And then, of course, the body parts themselves. Gets a little Frankenstein-y. Yeah, totally. And basically, you're trading in real time, but you're allowed to announce what cards you want and try to assemble a complete henchman, and you get bonus points for basically being the same color. The real-time element is enhanced a little bit by the fact that cards come into the game slowly over time. There's a sand timer which sits in front of you, just counting down. At any time, you can take the sand timer and just pass it to the left and take a card. That person who receives it can then turn it over if they want, or just let it tick. If the timer ever runs out in front of you, then you have to pass it, but you don't get a card. So really, it's a way of pacing the game, kind of in the same way Falling does, except having a pace based on a sand timer. I like that. That's an interesting way of using it. I actually designed it based on token ring. <laughs> Literally, the idea of a token going around. It... Nerd. Yeah, I know, I'm a nerd. The game itself was originally called Evil Geniuses, and it was mad scientists putting together monsters. I feel like there was a period in here where you were the official webcomic board game tie-in designer. With this and Warhamster Rally, you were that guy for a while. I did development with Jolly Roger at the time on some games like Theme Park, which is Joe Huber's, where Aaron Williams did the artwork. And so did some of the development on that. And it's mostly Jolly Roger because... He just approached John Kavalik and Aaron and asked them if he could do games based on their stuff. And he had a bunch of my games in his portfolio that he said, oh, do you want one of these? We can retheme it. That's cool. Yep. So last thing about Nodwick, it was originally two games, or originally it was one game. There was kind of the real-time trading part, and then there was an engine builder on top of that, and all of it played in real time. And it was too hard for humans to play. <laughs> I actually broke up the material into two games. The real time became Nodwick, and the other became something called Witch's Brew, which never saw the light of day. But I learned at that point that you can't make one of these games too complex without at least breaking out the real time elements to something simple enough. Yeah, I could see that. You can just see the internal brain temperatures going up until they spike. Yeah, absolutely. And that leads to our next game. Space Dealer and Time and Space. This is from 2006. Time and Space was a simplification of the same game coming out in 2013. This is a pick-up-and-deliver game, but it's a real, fully real-time pick-up-and-deliver game where you fly ships around, pick up things, and manage a tech tree all at the same time. It's right at that outer boundary of possible to play and over it for some people. Basically, you get two timers, and you have a whole bunch of ships, and you have a giant ring of planets with things you can pick up in cubes. What happens is you put a timer on a ship, and when that timer's done, you can make a move with it. Or you put a timer on a tech card, and then you can add it to your tech tree once that's done. That's an interesting way of simulating like timers that you see in video games. Oh, totally. Yeah, you got a cooldown. Yeah. And there's been a couple of attempts to do uh, like RTSs using a limited number of timers. Mm -hmm. This, of course, is a more obviously pick up and deliver, and it gets a little fiddly when you get two people who are zoning in on the same pickup. So you're watching the timer going, oh, wait, is this faster than mine? Is he going for that? I can see from the way you're describing that if you did the same thing, only turn based. I mean, this thing takes three turns to get there and this thing takes four turns to invent or whatever it is. That would totally work. But I feel like this adds a certain level of franticness be, to it. It'd be too slow and uninteresting. Space Dealer itself, if you have two copies, you can play it with eight people. Huh. Since everyone's taking turns simultaneously and you're on a giant ring, okay. most of it's pretty solitaire, except for those cases where you're bumping in someone to your left or right. So it is actually playable technically by you know as many people as you can build that ring, sure. which is a Let's little crazy. It was funny when I was reading up on this one, I went down a rat hole in Board Game Geek, which, you know, that never happens. Right. There was some controversy with this particular game where the sand timers people were claiming were not consistent <laughs> with each other. Oh, no. And, like, the company, when they made the new version in 2013, the German company that produced the sand timers actually wrote up a very well-written response about, well, we make these sand timers, they're hand-pulled glass by human beings, and <laughs> then we fill them and time them at the same time, and the ones that don't meet certain criteria, we toss them, and then we do additional testing. I was like, oh, this is fascinating. I'm like, oh, none of this is going in the podcast. And well, yet, yeah. there it is. <laughs> and yeah, the first did have some timers that were notably out of sync. So what you got are people with copies of Space Dealer kind of comparing timers and swapping timers. 
You know, it just occurred to me as we were talking about this that a lot of the stuff we talked about a couple episodes back when we were doing our program movement stuff could also be shoehorned into this because you basically have a certain amount of time to assign your moves. So consider that episode included in this one by reference. All right, so the next game that we see in our list is actually a 2007 release from Shet Games. This was, of course, designed by Vlade Chavatel, and that is Galaxy Trucker. This is all about piecing together a spaceship from the Discount Space Parts Emporium, (laughs) and then racing those spaceships that you've pieced together through the galaxy at reckless speeds. Those ships are perfectly cromulent, and you are well aware of it. (laughs) That depends on how many openings they have. So basically, this game is a tile placing game where you are in real time picking up tiles that are face down in the middle of the table and placing them onto your spaceship. Mike, I do want to make one small correction. This game consists of picking up a face down tile, looking at it, sighing heavily, putting it back face down, putting it back in the pile and taking something else and hoping you get something better. That's true. There is a lot of heavy sighing in the game. Sighing, <laughs> saying fine, whatever. And putting it, it on your ship and, and bolting cries. it onto the end of the wing, yeah. And so, like, your tiles can have a a part that will do a function, and there's, like, six or seven functions, including, like, guns and engines and life support. You know, all those things you need for a good functioning spaceship. Shields. Yeah, yeah. You don't need shields. But they will also have connections, which come in a one, two, or three connection pattern, which you have to match up, kind of? Because, like, if I remember correctly, you can connect a one to a three... Or a three to a three. Yeah, it's like threes are wild. They'll connect to one or two of the other kind, but a one can connect to a two, basically. Right. And it's all shown very clearly on the tiles themselves, which is really nice. Once everybody has finished this real-time component, which is actually done in a pretty unique way where it's like, you have a timer, and at any point, someone may go and flip the timer to the next space, and then the next space, and then the next space, and after that last flip... Everybody's out. So at most, they stole that from Nodwick. Yes, they did. At most, you've got what three, four minutes to do your ship, and if you're the last person, then you pretty much want to just take your sweet, sweet time. And there's really no reason not to, because once you're finished with this reckless abandon, you're going to assess each other's ship to see if any large chunks of their ship fall off. Because once you've placed a tile on your ship, you cannot change it. And if it is an illegal placement, that tile, and anything connected to that tile that is not otherwise connected to your ship, falls off. And I think you have to pay money for all the tiles you took, or... Yeah, there's a penalty you pay for screwing up. It's like one credit per tile to a maximum of like seven tiles or something like that. Which is important because the only thing that matters at the end of the game is how much money your space delivery business has made. So you want to build cheap, effective spaceships because after you are finished, you're going to be racing them through a set of different adversaries like meteor storms or pirates that you have to overcome. Some of them will be derelicts that you can stop and plunder, but in order to plunder them, your ship has to have storage, and in order to fly your ship, you have to have life support, and if you ever have no life support, you're out because everybody in your ship is dead. It's really a terrific game. Yeah, it is certainly not a serious hardcore game, but it is hilarious to see somebody just get the one absolutely wrong roll on a meteor, because when things are attacking you, there's basically a numeric grid, and you roll to see which column or row gets hit. And if it hits just in that one spot where like, the entire west wing of your spaceship just falls off into the void, it's kind of hilarious. And suddenly you find yourself without, say, an engine. But that could still be enough to win it for you if everybody else does. I love that the person who has the least open connections gets an award for the prettiest ship, which is hilarious (laughs) because when you think about these ships, they're functionally accumulations of junk bolted together. And so giving someone the prettiest ship is pretty hilarious. (laughs) They did make a couple of expansions for it. Have any of y'all played those? A couple. (laughs) Well, the one with the aliens is the one I know best, where you have different species that have different life support requirements and different areas of specialty on your crew. 
I know there are others. I'm not as familiar with those. Yeah, it got to the point where they even released a big box edition, which, I mean, I do love me a big box edition. But I will say that after a certain point, it just became too much. Like, there is one expansion that introduced other ship parts. And I found myself having to constantly stop and be like, wait a minute, what what does this thing do again? Why would I want this? Yeah. You don't remember what the chromatic flanger does? It's very critical. And now it's like playing Space Team. (laughs) I will say that, especially since we're in this period of isolation, the digital version of this that CGE Digital came up with is excellent. It does the tile selecting and putting back thing very well. And the actual race through space is sort of 3D rendered with your collection of I-beams and other junk zooming through space. It's really quite good if you like the board game. Does it have multiplayer? Uh, yes, it has online PvP and split-screen PvP. Split-screen so, PvP. Uh, yeah. I guess that's a thing people could do. <laughs> Two people typing on the same keyboard or something? That's crazy talk. Well, let's keep the space train rolling here, because apparently Czech Games is really into space, because in 2008 they came out with Space Alert, also developed by Plato Chivato. We've talked about Space Alert before. Essentially, you're on a spaceship hurtling through dangerous space, and you have to issue orders like move left, go up, activate the room you're in, but you're basically programming these actions ahead of time. And then you get to resolve it and see how badly you messed up compared to all the <laughs> threats that are approaching the ship. As you progress through the game, there's like a small like little campaign where they keep introducing new elements. They'll do fun things like instead of just having a 10-minute timer where you can talk out, you know, I've got a left and I need a double left and I need to activate this room, what can you do? That'll have a little soundtrack and you just come with a CD. I believe it's been replaced by an app since then. But it'll be like, radio silence, you guys can't talk to each other for the next minute and a half out of your 10 minutes. <laughs> so it keeps introducing little uh, roadblocks or little speed bumps to kind of jostle you out of finally feeling like you can actually process the game well enough. Yeah, we've talked about this one a couple times before because I, I think it's safe to say it is one of our favorites. Individually, when you're just doing your thing, it seems pretty easy. I'm going to shoot this thing two times, it'll be dead, I'll move over here, I'll shoot that thing once, then I'll go downstairs and look out the window. But because you have to manage the flow of energy through the ship, and you need somebody downstairs feeding the reactor and moving it off to different locations, and no one is quite sure there are some things that invaded the ship in Phase 7, and only one person really knows where they are at any given time, so where you need to be to attack them, it easily spirals out of control in that hilarious sort of way. Hey, did uh, anyone remember to jiggle the mouse on the computer? Oh, no. (laughs) I thought you did that. And also, I think I've said this before as well, but this may be one of the most entertaining rule books to read. I mean, (laughs) Vlada in general tends to write funny rule books, but this one is, it's basically done as an in-character guide to the aspiring space cadet, and there's just some great dialogue and stuff in there. Although Vlad is fond of uh, really complex real-time games. Because, you know, Galaxy Trucker got on this Space Alert, especially when you get to the expansions. Then there's Bunny Bunny Moose Moose, which is a light party (laughs) game with a billion little ear symbols you have to make. Yeah, I've looked at that game and I was like, I I think I'm fascinated by this, but I don't know if I'm willing to commit. Yeah, totally. Was Bunny Bunny Moose Moose also Vlad H. How did they get the bunnies and moose into space? I don't understand. (laughs) I will say one thing for Vlade. He has probably got the widest gamut of game designs of anybody I can think of. He goes from Bunny Bunny Moose Moose to Through the Ages. He covers the gamut. I think I am willing to make the definitive statement that Vlade Chavatol has been one of those designers who has been most consistently on my list of games that I like, where it's just like, you can tell me a game is by Vlade Chavatol, and I'll just be like, oh, okay, I'll play that sight unseen. Yeah, he's uh, he's real good. He's real good at what he does. Back to Space Alert, it's very clever and very well designed, and the moments of real-time mesh very well with the reveal at the end of like, well, cool, how did we totally screw up this time? <laughs> and almost every time, everybody kind of looks at each other as we're coming to the end of the time phase. Nope, we've got this. I think we're good. And then we start to oh, we're not good. Yeah, because like, you run into the elevators, right, where only one person can use them at a time, so you start mm-hmm. having conflicts where it's like, well, I'm off my timing by one whole move, so everything's broken. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And of course, the classic one, when you've been firing a gun for three rounds that doesn't have any energy, and when you were making the plans, it's like, well, clearly, that ship is dead now, so I'm going to go somewhere else and do something. I, I'm just going to walk away from it. <laughs> yeah. And I think we did talk about this last time, but last time we played this game, we introduced the 
character experience. Which yeah, the campaign game. I think I never want to play it without that now. I do like it a lot. It was really good. Next one I wanted to bring up is another little less strategery, more sort of party game-ish called La Boca. This was released in 2013 by Z-Man Games from Inca and Marcus Brand, which is a pair of names that we've mentioned a few times here before. And this is basically a 3D spatial arrangement co-op-appetitive game. Basically, the premise is, if we're going around the circle and it's my turn, I will randomly draw a token to see who my partner is for that round. And there are a series of colored blocks, and we will have a card placed between us in such a way that each of us can see one side of the card. And that shows what the profile of those blocks has to look like from our perspective. We'll put some pictures in the show notes so you can see what I'm talking about, because it's one of those things that's harder to describe in words. And then basically, my partner and I have to collectively arrange the blocks so that each of our sides looks exactly like what's on that picture. All right, well, I need this pink one here. Well, I can't see the pink, so I have to block it with this. And then there needs to be a black one on the second floor. There's just a lot of arranging and arguing back and forth and trying to figure out the best way to set up the grid to look at. And you have a certain amount of time. When you say you're done, both sides are correct. Somebody else checks and makes sure that both sides are, in fact, correct. There aren't extra blocks sticking out somewhere. And depending on how much time you have left, you get a certain number of points. This repeats going around the table until every player has played a match with every other player. And then you see who has the most points. It's fun. It's quick. There's sort of two levels of cards. So if you want to play with some younger players or some people who aren't as good at spatial arrangement game, you can have different levels of difficulty there. It's just fun. It can also play up to like eight, right? I think six is officially, but I also think it would be easy enough to add more players if you just came up with another way to determine who your partner is. Right. But yeah, it's really nicely put together, you know, good quality blocks. It has a lot of really fun moments, right? The moment where you and your ally for the moment are arguing about, oh, listen, I can't see pink, you can't put pink there. And then the moment where you kind of turn it over to the judges and say, judges, have we pleased you? Yes. Is always a great moment. That reminds me of, a, what was that game we played at Frank's where it was the head? Headquarter. Headquarter, that was it. Yeah, a little bit. Actually, a lot, now that I think about it. <laughs> we have a couple of honorable mentions. A lot of these are games that we've talked about before, but we want to at least run through to make sure we're not missing out on any. Joe has one of his favorites he wanted to mention. We can't leave this list without talking about XCOM the board game, which was designed by Eric M. Lang and published by Fantasy Flight Games. It is part of the modern resurgence of real-time games. You have an app that kind of drives the real-timeness. Most of the phases are real-time. There's a resolution phase that isn't real-time in some ways similar to Space Alert. During the real-time phase, the app like throws things at you. One person's job is kind of to administer the application and let everyone know kind of the things they need to be doing. It might be like, oh, hey, there's a crisis, so the commander of the base needs to draw some cards, or hey, we need to defend the base, and so some aliens have found our base and are attacking us, or hey, we need to go put guys on the missions, or we need to go research something. It's functionally a real-time auditing game where you need to constantly be auditing the budget, right? It's really just like a money simulator. You're like, hey, I need to... Make sure that we don't overspend, because if we overspend, we got to pull stuff back, and it's painful. And then everything else is fine, like, you know, <laughs> research stuff. It's all gravy after that. I mean, this is definitely the only game that has a auditor in it, who is a player, that is actually really fun to play. <laughs> Especially because it's like, man, the commander is in charge of the base, but also the accountant is the one who's like, nope, you can't do that. Nope, you can't do that. I need to put five guys on the mission. Nope, you, you get three. I don't care what you want, you get three. It is a extremely clever game. The expansion added some more difficulty and some more fun play options. And all in all, it's just really clever. Yeah, it's obviously not like the video game mechanically in any way, but it really does capture the feel of it pretty well. Mm -hmm. And has a really well-integrated app. I like it. A game that's had a weird past, but I adore, is kind of a co-op dungeon crawl skirmish game which pretty much has us written all over it it's project elite published originally by artpia games designed by constantinos kokinus and sotiros de santilas this is a weird game where you get two minute rounds during that two minutes you can sit there and roll your dice over and over and then spin the icons on those dice to take actions mostly shooting the millions and millions of aliens that have spawned on the board in between your little two-minute turns. 
you also have objectives depending on what your mission is, and you have to prepare an installation, which means you have to move over to that installation, pile a bunch of dice on it until it's fixed. Aside from the alien turns, though, there are alien move icons on your dice. So whenever you roll that, the aliens just start walking toward your primary base. If an alien ever makes it to your primary base, well, that's it. Game over. And so you're constantly moving, reacting to, oh crap, the aliens charging and attacking, etc. And all of this in very frantic two-minute bursts. The game itself originally had awful, awful minis and might have come out in 2015, then was kind of got a slightly wider release in 2016. And a 2020 release by Simon that looks like it's going to clean up some of the graphic issues that are in my old copy. But the game is addictive and frantic, almost like the game Escape Curse of the Temple, which was a co-op mm. run around a temple. But uh, Project Elite feels more combat-y and more hormonal. <laughs> Testosterone. You get to kill things. That's fair, I guess. I don't know. You kind of lost me at two minutes of rolling dice over and over. <laughs> So, Brian, I think you and I need to have a challenge where we see how quickly we can get our base destroyed by rolling the monster move icon. <laughs> I mean, you know, a challenge accepted. The actual game's fairly complex, but the things you can do during your movement during the real time are very, very focused. And the iconography is simple enough that it's actually playable, which is a surprise for that kind of game. Leaving aliens, let's talk about people shooting down people underwater. Captain Sonar, released in 2016 by Matago, designed by Roberto Fraga and Johan Lemonier. Got two teams. Each team represents a sub that's trying to shoot down the other sub, or torpedo it, I guess is more accurate. This isn't dogfighting. Each player on that team has a different role. The game's played in real time, and each person has to play their role to the hilt. Otherwise, their ship's going to be wildly off course, or their understanding of where the enemy ship is is going to be completely wrong. So you've got the, the captain who kind of decides where they want the sub to go and when they're going to fire their torpedo. You've got the chief mate whose literal job is telling people what the captain wants them to do. It doesn't sound like that's important. It really is. <laughs> it's the Sigourney Weaver on Galaxy Quest. I have one job on this <laughs> yes. ship. <laughs> yes, exactly. You've got the radio operator who's actually listening to the enemy team and seeing what they're planning on doing. And then they will be plotting the course of where the enemy might be on their own map. And then the engineer who has to fix all the broken things and manage powering up systems like being able to fire the torpedoes or do some sonar sweeps, that sort of thing. All of the positions are very stressful. <laughs> the game is controlled chaos at best, but it's a lot of fun, especially when you're convinced you have a perfect lineup on your opponent. You fire your torpedo only for them to go, yeah, that doesn't, that's not even close. No, <laughs> you miss. <laughs> It's interesting because a lot of real-time games are very sort of frantic. There's a lot of shouting. This one tends to be sort of very quiet and tense. All right, two degrees west. All right, I need more sonar power. Okay, got it. You know, more quiet and serious. Obviously, it depends on who you're playing it with. So it has this great moment when you decide you want to surface your sub, which is a terrible idea in general. But sometimes you have no choice, where you have to now do a line tracing mini game. Oh God. All yes. the players have to do it. You have to be exactly inside the line, and your opponents are the ones who are going to verify if you are or not inside the lines. So obviously, there's a certain amount of desire for them to be as sticklery as possible, but not be like, oh, hey, no, you did it correctly, but we disagree, so that they don't get the same thing from you. <laughs> All right, the three of us have done this correctly. We're running out of time. I just need you to draw a square inside these lines. And all the time while you're doing this, the enemy is still moving and lining up a shot on you. Yeah, I think once you surface, don't they get the quadrant that you're in? Something like that? They get some information. I believe so. Yeah. It's a fun game. It's hard to get a group of eight people together to do it. And it's not a game for everyone, right? Sure. Like, some gaming groups don't thrive on tension, and this game is functionally boxed tension. So <laughs> if you're like, hey, my, my gaming group is not the kind of gaming group where everyone can be tense, and at the end of it, we all enjoyed ourselves, then this is mayhap not the game for your group. Bonus points for quoting Hunt for October, though. <laughs> One ping only, that's it. <laughs> We're going to talk about Five Minute Dungeon and ultimately the reskin Five Minute Marvel version of it. Released in 2017 and 2018, respectively. Five Minute Dungeon was released by Wiggles 3D, and Five Minute Marvel was released by Spin Master Limited. Both of them were designed by Connor Reed. Five Minute Dungeon, your group of adventurers, you pick a boss that you're going to fight, 
and then you get a certain number of dungeon cards that will represent threats that you have to overcome to get to that boss to fight them. Each player is going to select from a character class. Um, so you've got like your wizards and your fighters and your barbarians and so on and so forth. And each of them have their own deck that has a certain number of colored icons inside that deck, along with a special unique power. When you start the game, you'll turn on the app, you'll turn on the timer. It is exactly five minutes. And you will flip the dungeon door and you will see what you're fighting. And it'll be like, here's a mimic. You need to have three swords and two magic symbols to defeat it. And everybody that's playing in real time can toss down a card from their hand that has one of those symbols. And then once you have enough symbols that match what's on that card, you can move on to the next card. The challenge is any card that you play stays played out. So <laughs> if you mill your entire deck before you get to the boss, you're basically useless. And you have to constantly try and make sure that, you know, people aren't burning too many cards or they're not wasting cards that have double icons when they don't need to. It's a lot of fun for a five-minute experience, and the bosses can get progressively harder as you go, and they tend to have tons and tons of icons. A lot of our games have gotten right down to the wire. On the Marvel version, it's basically just the same exact thing, but with Marvel heroes instead of D&T-type characters. There are cards that let you get stuff back from your discard, so there is a potential, but there's not a lot of them. So you'll find the hyper-aggressive people are like Twitch players are like, ah, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, cool, well, until we can heal you, you can't do anything for the rest of the game. Yeah, it does actually punish that kind of play a little bit because you'll eventually get to a point where you just cannot participate or be effective, and that hurts everybody, so... Yeah, it's all about efficiency, right? Because a lot of the characters have special abilities where they can auto-kill an obstacle, or they can auto-kill a certain type of enemy, like a humanoid enemy. So if I can just kill something with one card, great, as opposed to people burning cards from their decks. So it's a lot of paying attention to what type of threat you're facing, and then dealing with it as quickly as possible. I think we also have to talk about the best part of this game, in my opinion, which is the companion app, which is nothing but a five-minute timer. However... They built into it some voiceover work that was done by, um... That's the guy from Honest Trailers, but I don't Honest know Trailers guy. Oh, yeah. dear lord. <laughs> <laughs> and it has kind of that same humor and delivery to it, which I think is just really well done and fits the game perfectly. Another one that is variably fun and stressful and terrifying, and again, this is one that we've talked about before on the show, is Magic Maze, which is a 2017 release published by Sit Down and designed by Casper Lapp. Basically, you have a group of four adventurers who have lost all of their gear, and they have to go into a mall and steal their equipment back so they can go adventuring again. The players are all collectively moving these characters around, but each person can only do a limited number of things. One person can move them north or west. One person can use them elevators. One person can move them east and can also use certain special rooms. So basically, you are collaboratively in real time trying to move all of these people around and get them to the right position. What makes it really interesting is that you're not allowed to talk to one another during the process. So it's like, all right, well, we need to get the elf, who is the green pawn, to the green store. So you move him down this hallway, and then he has to go north. And there's one player that can make him go north, and they're looking at something else. So you're just kind of staring at them intently. And then you pick up the big red pawn, which is called the do-something pawn. Officially in the rules, you just put it in front of them politely to indicate that you want them to do a thing. That's not how we play. There's no one just, can do that. It's just impossible. You just start tapping it in front of them, generally with increasing speed and anger behind it as they're looking at the board frantically trying to figure out what it is that you want them to do. Brian, you repeatedly put it in front of them because <laughs> yes. they're not paying attention. If they'd done it the first time, it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> You're right. There's something like 30 levels in the base game that each keep introducing. New rules, there are one-way doors, there are doors that only some characters can go through, there are security cameras, there's an expansion that adds even more madness. Like I said, it's a game that can be tremendously fun, but can also be very stressful. So, like Captain Sonar, it's sort of one where you need to know your group. If Captain Sonar is stress in a box, this is highly distilled stress in a smaller box. And what's nice about it is the actions are so simple. I mean... I can move any pawn left. That's all I can do. And yet it's so hard, so difficult to get the timing. Surprisingly hard to pay attention to all the things going on. Therein lies part of the problem with the do-something pawn. You can only move pawns left. There are only four pawns. So you look at the board when somebody's putting the do-something pawn in front of you, and you move a pawn left. Not that one! <laughs> they keep tapping, so you move another pawn left. 
they keep tapping, so you move a third pawn left, and before you know it, you've literally ruined everybody's plans because you've moved all of the pawns to the left, and it's just like, that was not what you wanted to do. Yeah, it's silly and fun and great. This game has one of the best, hey, we did it moments in gaming. Once you have solved this puzzle, and you can all talk again, like kind of the explosion of conversation that happens is... yeah is rarely seen, right? Because the amount of quiet you're doing, the amount of concentration everyone's doing, the sounds that come out of the gaming group at that point are always really hilarious. On to something a little more gamery. This sounds like a kind of almost our wet dream of a game. <laughs> it's a Tale of Pirates 2017, published by Cranio Creations, designed by Asger Harding, Grenerud, Daniel Skold peterson and Danielle Testini. It's a game with a gorgeous 3D board, real-time, almost legacy that's unlockable pieces and envelopes that you open every mission, and an app driving the entire thing, just to keep this whole trifecta of crazy. When you look at the board, it is a gigantic 3D pirate ship that all the sand timers representing your pirates go onto with a bunch of cards. There's a big crow's nest on top, a sail you adjust. And what happens in each of the missions... Basically, you're on board the ship as pirates, and you have so much time, say 15 minutes, to complete the entire mission. And the missions are going to vary, but they mostly involve setting speed on the ship, turning the ship left and right, using the cannons that are facing front left and front right on the ship to blow away other pirate ships, and occasionally sail through things at certain speeds or do other tasks. The ship's basically divided into six different worker placement kind of zones. The crow's nest lets you look at face down cards and turn them face up, which you might want to do because some of those cards are rocks. And if you turn toward them and reveal a rock, you damage the ship. And of course, you know, removing all your hearts on the ship kills you. Same thing, you can load cannonballs, you can fire cannons, in which case you're taking a shot at the ship your cannon's staring at, because at the end of each round, those ships are going to return fire and they'll damage your ship. When you take damage, you also end up putting these large corks in certain places, so you have to repair the corks, because once you run out of corks in space to put damage in, it damages the ship. And then you can actually turn the ship with a wheel. On your turn, you take your action and put the sand timer counting down in the place you just took, or actually you put it in place, then take your action, and then kind of wait. So it's a little bit of an oddly slower paced game than you'd think it is without the frantic chaos of Magic Maze, because basically when you first start the timer, everyone immediately goes to one spot and then sits there for 30 seconds, tapping, <laughs> looking around, thinking, discussing what they're going to do next. And the app also gives you very nice guidelines to how to set up the mission, as well as periodically just throwing random events at you, like, oh, turn the ship clockwise suddenly, which causes screaming, actual screaming in some cases. <laughs> the missions themselves start with you having to navigate to different passages between islands, but then after that, each unlocks a whole board of tokens, new sand timers, new things. So the missions get quite a bit more complex, and you always, of course, want to see what's in the next envelope. And it has kind of the feel of Space Alert, but much simpler. And again, you're taking the actions at the same time, so it's not as complex or Byzantine. The actions are very simple. You get to do it immediately. Still, it's fast enough that you can feel really stupid. Sounds great. I love feeling stupid. And then I think you had another one that you wanted to at least mention. Oh yeah, Wartime, which I haven't played, I want. It's like two to four players. It kind of goes for that RTS thing. Got a couple sand timers. The sand timers that come with the game are like 30, 45, 60, 90 second sand timers. And each of the battle scenarios specifies how many timers it comes with. You're given a hex war game with pretty simple prescriptive moves and no dice and you just move and attack except that whenever you take an action you have to put a sand timer on that unit to do the thing it's played in real time wow, and it's cheap on amazon uh-oh <laughs> <laughs> so we've had some people that have commented that this podcast has cost them money know that this podcast also <laughs> costs us a lot of money yeah so if you want to put a review on itunes to help us buy more games not that we get money for that but you know what i'm saying the last one I wanted to just mention quickly is a game called Bullet, 
possibly Bullet Heart. All the Kickstarter stuff is labeled just Bullet, but there's a heart after the name, but apparently the heart is silent. I don't know what the deal is. Okay, let's all agree to call it Bullet 2764. That's the Unicode value for heart. Jesus. Thanks, Joe. So if they decided to use a heart symbol, then we will encode the heart symbol for them. (laughs) Anyway, it's by Level 99 Games, designed by Joshua Van Lanningham, and it's due out in 2021. The Kickstarter will have closed by the time you hear this episode, but they may be doing late pledges and stuff. Basically, it's a game where you are anime heroines who are having a bunch of bullets shot at you, and your job is to deflect those bullets towards the other players so they get hit and you don't. The bullets are these little tokens that come down sort of a sliding Tetris-like scale towards you. They come in different colors, each of which is its own column. And you have a set of what are called pattern cards in front of you. And if you can arrange the bullets in front of you in such a way that they match one of those patterns, you can discard this card and discard a certain number of bullets within that pattern and pass them to the player on your left for the next turn. The characters start from a relatively simple level and get into some pretty complicated you know, 3D chess kind of configuration as far as your abilities to move bullets around. It's pretty fast playing. There's a co-op mode. The art looks real nice. There are a couple things in the rules that aren't quite clear, but I know they're going to be working on those as they develop. There is a full demo version of it on Tabletop Simulator if you want to give it a try. I think it's pretty fun. I backed it. I'm curious to try it once they have the full version out. I think that they're going to need to do some serious tweaking of balance between some of the characters because, like, the character I played just seemed incredibly overpowered compared to some of the other characters that y'all played. I would clear my board of bullets and send them all to friend of the show, Anna, who would have like twice as many bullets in her bag as everybody else for the next round. I do think there's definitely some balanced stuff to look at, but you know, that's the kind of thing that can easily happen during the development process, and they seem to be pretty responsive to questions and comments like that. All right. Well, that is our episode, folks. So thank you very much for listening. Hopefully you've gotten some good ideas of games you might like, or you can write in and tell us why we're wrong and we've forgotten the obvious best ones. As always, we'd love to hear your comments on Facebook, on Twitter, any of those social media things. Please keep listening, and we will be back again next month. In the meantime, stay safe, wash your dang hands, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. I'm sorry, are you guys not existing entirely within the confines of the internet now? What's wrong with you? Ascend already.